Thanks for tuning in for this month's Best Moments of the Futures Radio Show podcast. Futures Radio Show is sponsored by CME Group. They are the world's leading and most diverse futures and options exchange. CME Group's markets help individuals and businesses around the world effectively manage risk. For access to free educational tools and resources for the active individual trader, please visit activetrader.cmegroup.com. For new show notifications, please subscribe to Futures Radio Show on iTunes, YouTube, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. And new in 2021, Futures Radio Show is now being recorded in video exclusively on YouTube. This show is also sponsored by Trading Technologies, TradeStation, and FTSE Russell. The Russell 2000 is a key benchmark for small cap U.S. stocks. Be sure to check out the E-mini Russell 2000 future symbol RTY and micro E-mini Russell 2000 future symbol M2K. To learn more about FTSE Russell and their products, please visit FTSERussell.com. I don't think a lot of people still fully understand how QE works. I know that you do. <laughs> Could you explain to all of us how QE actually works? Sure, sure. So it's a, 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 a bit of background. Before I got into the investment world uh, as a sovereign analyst, that's how I started. Uh, I worked at the Treasury Department and at the International Money, Monetary Fund, and I must have climbed into, I don't know, dozens of, of central banks to try and help you know, with, uh, with, uh, with things when they, when they have financial problems. So I got to understand the mechanics of, of uh, central banking and monetary policy pretty well. It's different in each country, but uh, the, the building blocks are, are roughly similar. In the case of the U.S., uh, I think people just don't get what it means. They, you know, they hear the shorthand printing money, but it's, it's not obviously really that. Uh, basically, the way to think about it is an asset swap, right? Uh, so the Fed buys bonds. Let's say it buys them from J.P. Morgan. They buy bonds from uh, J.P. Morgan and gives J.P. Morgan a deposit, a demand deposit, basically, a site deposit at the Fed, uh, at, at the Federal Reserve. So it's in what they call the federal fund system, right? Now, J.P. Morgan can't use those funds except to settle with other banks, Uh or, or they can demand, in, if they want, they can demand part of it in currency. But that doesn't really happen so much. So that money's kind of trapped in there. And it's used uh, for reserve requirements, you know, because banks have to have liquidity requirements. And for that, you can either have treasuries or, 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 or uh, reserves held at the Fed. Um, and you can use it to settle with, with, with other banks. That's it. So basically, you're just saying, okay, I'm going to give you my T-bill. And you're going to give me a deposit. Maybe the interest rate is roughly roughly the same. So that's it. You're not creating any wealth. There's nothing being injected into the system. You're taking a, tra- a T-bill out and, and you're putting a deposit uh, in. So I think that's the biggest mistake. People think that, that uh, it's adding somehow to the system. But what it's really doing is just changing one high quality uh, li- government liability for, uh, for another. Uh, and think about it uh, this way. If, 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 you, if you have your pie chart of your asset allocation, uh, and you have 20% of, of uh, your portfolio in T-bills. That's your cash position. Uh, and the, the Fed buys it from, buys all 20% from you and gives you a deposit with roughly the same yield. What are you going to do? Are you going to go out and buy Tesla with that? 
No, because that would mess up your asset allocation, right? You have 20% that's supposed to be in a, in a cash-like product. So uh, it doesn't, the, the idea that they're pumping money into the system and then people are turning around and, and buying risky assets with it uh, is just not, is just not real. Now, people may decide to buy risky assets because there's a, a placebo effect. People feel good when the Fed gets involved. They think, okay, uh, they've got your back and, and people might take more risk. So they might decide to take their uh, cash allocation down from 20% to 10%, right? But that's a different call. Uh, that, that, that's, a, that's a different issue from uh, being directly affected by uh, QE. So I think that's the right way to think about it. Now, the Fed can also buy bonds through JP Morgan from you or me, right? From our portfolios or, 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 you know, or, or from PIMCO or whomever. And there, um, the deposit, you know, JP Morgan is the credit with a deposit, and then JP Morgan credits PIMCO or you or me or whomever with a deposit. But we have that same issue that um, it's not changing uh, our asset allocation, really. Uh, so we're not going to take that money and turn around and change our asset allocation and buy Tesla unless some other reason makes us more bullish. Something else happens that makes us uh, a, a, that increases our risk, our risk appetite. So I think that's the that's the best way to think about it. And, and what a lot of people don't get is the reason uh, the Fed balance sheet is so big is because in the wake of the, the one of the main reasons uh, it's so big is after the, the global financial uh, uh, crisis in 2008, they changed a lot of the rules to ensure that banks have a greater liquidity cushion. And they, so they need these reserves. They need these reserves as, uh, as that liquidity cushion to per, uh, prove that they can cover cover their liabilities. If there were less bank, uh, less uh, regulation or less less onerous liquidity constraints, uh, they would need the banks would need to hold hold so many reserves. Thank you for that explanation. And there's a couple things I want to follow up on so you could clarify why these things are happening. The first thing I want to talk about is money supply. This is yeah. not something that I follow uh, a ton in my career as a trader, but it's something that I keep seeing more and more people talk about, and they're saying there's a big surge in money supply. If the Fed is not printing more money, then why are we seeing that surge? Well, what happens is treasuries uh, – so there are two things. Uh, one, uh, the uh, Federal Reserve uh, has uh, what they call base money. So it's ba- the, the balance sheet of the Federal Reserve – uh, that's called base money, right? Uh, and then base money is a small percentage of the overall money supply. So uh, if, if JP Morgan creates a credit for you, right, extends a credit to you, that increases the money supply, even though the Federal Reserve wasn't involved at all, right? They can decide to extend the loan. It's not like they go and take their liquidity. All they're really doing is crediting, is crediting your account. Right. Uh, electronically. That's what the that's what uh, J.P. Morgan does. Now they have to make sure that they have uh, the proper capitalization. Right. They have to reserve against the credit risk uh, that, that they take from from lending. And they have to make sure that any deposits arising uh, from that loan have sufficient liquidity pro- provisions. But that's creating the money supply. So I think one of the, the first level of confusion is people think that what the, uh, the, the base money is the money supply. Very, very different. Uh, so if, if uh, base money, let's say it's 10% of the overall money supply, you could double it and the money supply is only increasing by 10%, right? So uh, that, that misconception that somehow the Fed is pumping up the money supply, they're really only working on a small, uh, a small portion of it. However, 
what does increase the money supply is if uh, uh, is is uh, is the credit from the federal funds facilities that they uh, created in the wake of the COVID crisis, right? Remember all these facilities uh, that they were lending? Yeah. Uh, that creates, that creates money supply right there. And the, the other thing is the treasury can take uh, it's so the treasury also keeps deposits with the fed and they're counted as reserves. If the treasury drains that money uh, to make fiscal payments, right? The, the fiscal spending, uh, that also injects money into the system. So it's not uh, really so much from the Fed increasing its balance sheet. It's from uh, lending as a result of Fed uh, facilities, lending in the context of the economy, and the Treasury uh, drawing down on its deposits at the Fed. Give us the landscape that you currently see in the market. You know, Just to summarize kind of what we talked about today and where you see the investments right now for what you're seeing and also talk about to where whatever it is that you're seeing right now, your, your, your theme to where, what would be starting to happen to where you would may start changing your mind? Because there's one thing I look at as a trader and as an investor, I like understanding the theme, but most important to me when that theme, how does that theme break? How does that theme change? So talk Mm -hmm. to us about that. Yeah, so I think the overall theme is this really high level of growth we're going to see uh, in the United States. I think that the the Fed projected it uh, at about 6.5% growth, which we haven't seen uh, in 40 years. Um, so super high growth. Uh, monetary base is also increasing. Uh, they projected inflation at 2.5%. We've already seen the CPI bump above that. My projection was always between 3 and 5% with the hope that it's transitory. Um, and that by 2022, 2023, um, we see, you know, productivity back to normal. We see employment, you know, back to, you know, it's between two and 4%. Um, and the Fed tightens up policy. We see interest rates no longer near zero, probably upwards of one to 2%. Um, and, and we're, you know, back to like that pre-pandemic healthy economy. Um, so Right now, I'm looking a lot at tourism just because that was the industry that was most hit. It's still, you know, struggling to rebound. But I think we will see, especially for short term gains, we will see, you know, a nice spike in uh, transportation, um, cruises, hotels, all of that, all on that front. Um, Going into crypto as a personally as a, you know, hedge from inflation. Um, And then once things start to tighten up again, uh, I think it'll be really interesting to see. Uh, what industries have survived and what industries are really strong. Something we didn't really touch on is the fact that tech is deflationary. So we do have these opposing mechanisms where, you know, we are in the age of technology. We have all these great new innovations and, uh, you know, technology moving to Austin, Miami, uh, and tech is a deflationary force. So probably moving into to technology uh, portfolio-wise would be my... Once I, once I get out of transportation and crypto, going to technology would be probably... Uh, if the Fed uh, really does tighten up policy pretty um, dramatically, as their dot plot seems to show, really going from zero to like 3%. Um. The dot plot. I don't even know where to begin with that. Why did they ever even start that? Did they ever really follow? I mean, (laughs) it's like, I don't even... I remember pulling this up and going, what, what, I'm going, what am I, what am I looking at here right now? Right. Really? I mean, how long, how long did they follow that for? I don't, I, I don't remember. It wasn't long. No, they're, I mean, it completely changed. They're the, oh. well, the ones they had in December had completely, completely shifted with their, uh, 
their increased expectations. Uh. <laughs> yeah, you know, final thoughts uh, just before I let you go. Um, I know we talked so much about crypto, and I know a lot of people are probably thinking, what other cryptos are you in? Bitcoin, Ethereum, we talked a lot about those. What other ones are you looking at? I think you named one of them, maybe two of them. But name those cryptos. And also, where do you go to get some ideas for these new cryptos? Because there's one thing for me, I find that it's it's overwhelming now how many new coins are out there. I, I can't figure out you know, which one is the good one versus the bad one. You know, I, that's why I've really stayed mostly on Bitcoin and Ethereum and I'm no crypto expert. Like I said, I'm just a trader who looks for opportunity and, and I have, I've bought some other cryptos, but a lot of those are from recon, uh, recommendations from my crypto friends and I read about them and I say, okay, I'll allocate X to this. But which ones are you looking at now and where do you go for a resource? Yeah, so like I said, I'm mostly in uh, Bitcoin, Ethereum, uh, looking at places like Sol Solana, um, FTX, uh, and uh, Zillica. Um, and then I've I've also found, you know, for myself, just looking at um, companies like, so I'm in this one called Versaview, for example, very, very small. Like if you, if you see, it's, it's super tiny and I'm holding it for the long run, but it's a, essentially a company that's trying to uh, move uh, rewards programs to the blockchain. So a lot of times when I, you know, look at cryptos, I look at the overall structure, um, the, you know, what the goal of the, you know, the the project actually is, uh, whether or not I find that viable, um, and whether or not I see that having some sort of long-term strength. Why trade futures with TradeStation? You can trade over 160 futures contracts and over 240 futures options products from home, work, or on the go with a powerful, easy-to-use interface and prices that let you focus on padding your wallet, not emptying it. TradeStation, helping you reach your financial edge. I want to start off, Mish, talking about Ethereum because I've talked about this pretty vocally. This is my strongest uh, look right now. I'm long Ethereum uh, in a full position and actually a good day for you and I to talk about it because we're seeing a decent pullback. And I saw in your Twitter stream that you are also very bullish Ethereum. Uh, talk to us about how that trade has set up for you and what your thoughts are on Ethereum. Well, up until about a month ago, I was all over Bitcoin. And we didn't exactly trade Bitcoin through buying Bitcoin itself because of our clientele really wanted to look at more alternative means. So we were buying it through GBTC, which is the grayscale. We were buying it through Riot, MacroStrategy, Canaan. And, uh, and then all of a sudden, it just seemed like um, it couldn't get through that 60,000 one more time. And I started looking elsewhere as I was doing more research and found that Ethereum to me was more interesting because of the blockchain technology. So it's more than just a currency. And I, I like that. So the whole network has been really supported by Amazon Web Services. And when I look more and more into it, I started to discover how innovative that whole space could be for banking, lending, global transactions. And I think it's the future. So when I looked at the actual chart, because I still rely on the charts ultimately, I noticed that from January 2021, it was making higher lows on every swoon down. And so we got in just at around 1660. And uh, but we did it through, again, a trust, the ETHE. And so we got in uh, right. The, the price was sort of comparable at that point. And then uh, we took a little bit of profit just because we like to lock in. But we're we're hanging in there for the long haul. I think Ethereum can go to twenty four, twenty five hundred pretty soon, actually. 
Now, I feel the same way. Uh, going back to what you talked about how you started to get into Ethereum really started the same way for me. You know, I talked to a lot of people on this show and what I've learned from speaking to a lot of people that are in crypto is that Ethereum is actually being used. I still don't know. I mean, I've owned Bitcoin a bunch of times. I'm not in any Bitcoin right now, but I I really look at Bitcoin and say to myself, what am I going to use this for? Yeah, maybe you could barter it and use it in that way. But Ethereum is now being used. And the NFTs, think about how popular that's getting, right? They're, they're, they're building on Ethereum. Then you have the Visa story last week, or maybe it was a week and a half ago, almost two weeks already, was really a trigger for me because... When I saw that Visa is now going to allow people to pay off debt and USDC off of Ethereum, I'm like, you know what? I just think it's going to bring in this flow of money. Where I, I don't think that a lot of people still know how to even buy Ethereum. So that was really kind of how my story came to it. And just like you said, I went to the charts afterwards and I looked at it and said, it's setting up really well on the technicals. Um how is that how a lot of your trades set up first? Uh, is it it's set up with a story and a theme and then you go to the charts? Absolutely right on, Anthony. That is exactly how I function. Considering I started out on the commodities floor, it wasn't like I had an opportunity to do a lot of research on other commodities. I was all about the commodity I was in, which sort of forced me into a theme. So, yeah. for example, if I was looking at sugar because I was trading sugar, I, I may or may not be so interested in the news, but I knew that it was a theme that obviously sugar was going to go up in more inflationary times. And I caught really that whole swoon because I went down there. I hate to age myself, but it was back when the commodities went crazy in the late 70s, early 80s. And that's when I said, but you know what? This is moving so fast or I'm interested in this idea or wow, it looks like maybe across the way gold is starting to percolate. I better look at a chart. And that's really how I do everything because I have to look at some kind of a historical price action or I feel like I'm just shooting in the dark and that's definitely not my style. Traders, we're gonna pause for 15 seconds and we'll be right back. Trade the global markets with trading technologies. TT is the world's fastest commercially available futures trading platform. Now with integrated tools for advanced options trading, cryptocurrencies and trade surveillance. Learn more at tradingtechnologies.com. A lot of times over the past few years, we've been talking about new products. And actually today, we're not talking about a new product. We're talking about an existing product with the E-mini NASDAQ that you are now adding two additional weekly expirations in the options market. And this is something that the E-mini S&P and the E-mini Russell already had and now we're getting it in the NASDAQ. Talk to us about why this is now being added to the E-mini NASDAQ. Yeah, that's a great question. So back on April 12th, we introduced Monday and Wednesday expirations in the E-mini NASDAQ 100 options on futures at CME. Uh, and it's really a, a few reasons that make it really attractive to introduce this product uh, one, the NASDAQ is a very topical trade in the marketplace in general. It tends to lead the way on some of the price performance in the U.S. and certainly in the work-from-home environment uh, and the story stocks and the FANG stocks. Lots of things going on in NASDAQ. And then when we look at the option growth at CME and NASDAQ, the existing options we had were up 55% this year versus last year, doing over 24,000 options per day. 
And then when we kind of peel back that growth, what's really interesting is a large percentage of that option growth in the NASDAQ E-minis has come in the weekly Friday offering. Uh, That's up 62% versus last year uh, and just really speaks to the need of the market and the wanting of market participants to trade those shorter dated options. Like you said, we already had Mondays and Wednesdays in the S&P 500 and the Russell. So now finally kind of rounding out that similar offering in the NASDAQ 100. Certainly excited off to a great week uh, with some good volume here in week one, some great market quality. Uh, so folks should definitely check it out. I think it's going to be a great, useful tool for market participants to manage their risk or deploy some great uh, option strategies around the NASDAQ. Yeah, so bottom line, it comes down to that the NASDAQ options are now growing a lot. <laughs> That's what it comes down to, right? Absolutely. They, they continue to grow. Uh, and I think when you couple that with the increased growth of shorter dated expirations, you know, where, where I forget the exact statistic, but it's always increasing where something between 60 and 70 percent of option trading is happening in those contracts with expirations 10 days or less. Right. So I think this is really a great combination of two very strong trends in the market. The Nasdaq 100 as an index and short dated options on futures trading. Why is it important to have so many expirations? Yeah. You know, I think what makes it important is when we're looking at the option expirations, it's really about the increased precision that having that expiration does on a Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. So I think one great example that might help is when we look at the NASDAQ, think about, you know, we're heading into corporate earnings season here. Uh, There's going to be a lot of the top names of the NASDAQ. There's concentration at the top. If you have uh, those names in your portfolio and want to hedge against some earnings, you can use options. Uh, what if those earnings are on a Tuesday? Now you can trade that Wednesday option without maybe having to overpay for the Friday option uh, or vice versa if it's happening uh, on a Friday or something you think event specific might be happening over the weekend, you can use that Monday option. So it just allows you to really precisely hedge, especially if things are happening after the close. You can pick your point during the week without overpaying from a theta or a gamma perspective on the option. So I think it's really, that's, that's something that I would suggest people, that's a great use case Uh, that I think is also very timely given that we are heading into earnings season here. We're both floor traders in our backgrounds, but totally different floors, different states. You were an NYSE floor trader, and you went from a specialist to an electronic trader. And I think this is a good week to talk to you because I have found that so many of my friends that were specialists or came from the equity side, when they start trading, the index is more or the trading futures, you know, S&P, NASDAQ, and Russell, they trade earnings weeks so much better than we do. <laughs> and, you know, this is one of those weeks where I have typically in the past either taken some time off uh, or I've struggled. Uh, I, I just know that they're just a, a little bit of a tougher week for me. You know, I don't know I don't know the equity side like a lot of you guys. What are your thoughts like coming into an earnings week and, and just what's your process and approach is? Well, it's definitely a different approach from when I was a specialist. Well, when, for a quick background, when I was a specialist on the floor during earnings week, <clears throat> when our stocks reported earnings, obviously, if there was a big move, whether it was up or down the stock, you had to be on the other side of it. You had no choice. That was our floor function. So if it was bad earnings, bad revenues, and the stock was opening down 2 or 3%, uh, you had to be on the other side, and we would try to price the stock where we were obviously going to be more comfortable taking on some big inventory, whether it was long or short. 
totally different now being behind the screen. Um, although that did take me a while. My first year, I was getting killed because I still thought I was a specialist behind the screen. <laughs> so I had to change my thinking uh, totally uh, on that. And now when uh, earnings come out, now being that I do trade mostly the S&P and the indices, I don't deal that much individually with stocks. But in a case of like, if you look at a Tesla, we were talking about it before we came on the air. Tesla is in, in balance in all three time frames, And as a trader, balance and excess right now are our two biggest important uh, parts of trading. So being that it's in balance, you're looking for the stock to come out of balance. Looking where it's trading right now, we're down about 20 bucks uh, after hours. Um, but until it takes out, I mean, a stock like Tesla has a huge balance. So until it takes out a balance low, um, I wouldn't be looking to get short because you're going to play balance rules. So uh, with the earnings, if we stay in balance, there's not much of a trade. But for argument's sake, if tomorrow morning Tesla is to open up below the $700 level and get acceptance below it, I'm going to be looking on the short side um, because everybody who's been in this balance that's long is going to be looking to get out of their inventory and you're going to have shorts piling on. So that's where the big difference is as far as being a specialist with earnings and trading earnings as an individual trader. Explain to everybody what being in balance means. Sure. So as you're looking at the chart here in, in Tesla, balances are very subjective. There's no right or wrong. Trading is an art. It's very visual. It's not a science as far as I'm concerned. So you can see here over the last 10 trading days, Tesla's had a, a high of $781. We'll round it out in a low of $691.80. So it has a range of about $90. Now, this is a big one we're using. Until you come out of that balance, buyers, traders are going to do its work until it doesn't work anymore. So if you right now they closed today before the earnings came out, right in the middle of it. So there's no real trade. But if the stock is to push to the lower end of the balance, well, balance rules would suggest three things can happen. Either you get to the bottom of a balance, it doesn't go through, and then you reverse to the opposite end. You slightly extend the balance to the downside, sellers dry up, you come back in, eventually you get to the top of the balance, or you go through the bottom of the balance and don't look back. So that was why balance is so important um, when it comes to trading, because it does tell you it's waiting for more market-generated information. Even with Tesla down 20, it's still in balance. It's not a clear trade if I was trading Tesla as of right now going into tomorrow morning. Got it. So what I'm taking is is that if a stock that's coming out with earnings, such as Tesla, mm -hmm. and we know it could have an impact on you know S&P or NASDAQ, if it's in balance, you're not accounting for it to do too much to the indices. Am I, am I reading that wrong or right? No, that's correct. If it stays in balance, it should not affect the indices as much. Um, a perfect example quickly is Amazon. There were rumors about them maybe splitting today. Well, when that rumor came out, the triple Q started running and they went from being in balance on the day to attempting to trend higher. So that came out of balance based on that, on that rumor. Got it. How much of being a specialist have you taken to help you become an intraday you know, electronic indice trader? Um, I think the biggest thing, I, 
I haven't really taken much. I had to, I had to re, uh, relearn. <laughs> I had to retool myself, to be quite honest with you. The biggest thing is I have taken away is, and you know it being a floor trader, you could always get that sense of momentum. I mean, you used to hear the trading floor. Now, I don't, you don't hear that. You hear by yourself. But you still have, I think, the feel of the market that as floor traders we had, and I had it for 25 years, I still believe that serves me very, very well um, trading behind the screen. So the instincts. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, knowing who you're trading against, your competition. I mean, we, we go over that. I talk about that a lot in my room uh, all the time. It's knowing you, first and foremost, you have to know yourself. What kind of trader are you? That's number one. Number two, you have to know who your competition is on a daily basis. And number three, is you have to know the vehicle you're trading. And believe it or not, I only trade, you know, I trade specifically mostly the S&P because I put so much time and effort into it. I mean, I have destinations and reference points going back 10 years in it. Um, I don't think my mind could handle doing that kind of workload on five different stocks. So even though I trade the Russell and the NASDAQ, I don't have the deeper uh, understanding of them that I do of the SPY uh, because I put so much time and effort into that. Who do you feel that your competition is? For the most part, our competition on a daily basis is just short-term traders. Short-term algos that try to get paid providing liquidity, although they don't really provide liquidity. They just, you know, they're trying to make pennies here and there. Retail traders such as myself, I think you can tell in the in the lack of tempo, the lack of volume, um, the mechanical way that the market stops at such incredible visual points that you know who you're trading against. Long-term traders would not care about those uh, mechanical reference points. And that's not to say long-term traders aren't in the market every day. They are. And they're all in there through algorithms. However, they don't dictate the action most of the time. It's, it's mostly the short-term traders. Thank you for listening to Futures Radio Show. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a five-star review on iTunes. Never miss an episode. Go to anthonycrudelli.com and get on our email list for show notifications and for free content that is exclusively for subscribers. Also on anthonycrudelli.com, you will find tons of videos and education on trading futures, options, and crypto. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Opinions expressed are solely my own and my guests, and they do not express the views or opinions of my sponsors. Future's radio show is produced by Crudelli Productions.